At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Everywhere we turn, someone is promising to finally give us the satisfaction and happiness we long for. Yet from advertisements to political campaigns, these promises so often remain unfulfilled. We know God makes promises too, but do you ever wonder if He'll actually keep them? Join us for our Christmas series, Fulfilled, as we discover how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to us and how the promises He kept then fulfill our deepest longings now. Uh, so it's my favorite time of the year. I love Christmas. I think I've probably told you guys this before. I'm a huge Christmas fan. I love everything about it. Yesterday was decorating day in our house. We have our tree. We, uh, we were putting all, everything up. It's great. I love it. The music, the whole thing. I'm all about it. I don't know if anyone else is with me, but I love Christmas, right? Okay, good. There's a few of you out there. But when it comes to Christmas and this season, as much as I love it, I feel like each year I encounter afresh a little bit of tension in the Christmas season. Even this week, there's, there's these little moments where I feel a tension in my heart around what we do, what we engage in this season. And the tension that I often feel comes from what I've begun to classify as the difference between the reality of Christmas and the romantization of Christmas. You see, I think oftentimes there's moments where I feel a tension between the real story of Jesus and the way that story has been romanticized and kind of captured in culture and within the church. And, and there's just these moments where I feel that tension, right? I, I feel it sometimes when I will look at like a manger scene and, and all the characters are portrayed in, in like white or European ethnicity. And I think like, Jesus was Jewish. Like, that's, that's the reality. Like, he didn't look like this. I, I feel that tension when I sing songs like, the cattle are lowing, the babe he awakes, and little, or little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And I think, like, I've been around waking babies, and the last thing you would characterize them is quiet, right? That's not normally how they wake up. Like, that doesn't seem, like, real, or I feel that tension when I hear the story or I see the story and it feels like we, we leave out the challenging parts. Like the real realization of the way Mary would have been rejected in her culture as an unwed pregnant teenager. Or the fact that Jesus' birth story actually contains one of the most heinous genocides recorded in history. Like we just gloss over this stuff, we ignore it. It seems like the reality of Christmas and the story that's actually told in the Bible somehow gets romanticized and portrayed in the lens of kind of our culture and, and, and almost sanitized to make it fit a little bit better. Why do we do this? Why is it so easy for us to fashion Jesus and his story and our image and often avoid the hard parts of Christmas? One of the things I think I've observed just throughout the history of Christianity and I think still rings true today is that there seems to be, for whatever reason, a pull for us to try to connect Jesus and his story with the values of what our world and culture say is valuable. To often recategorize Jesus' story in a way that seems to fit a little bit more pal palatably, I don't know if that's a word, we'll try it, with what we see around us. And part of this is because we think, well, then that'll just make Jesus connect better 
Right? Who wants to follow a homeless guy from nowhere that seemed no one to care about? Not me. So maybe we can make his origin a little better. Maybe we can make it fit a little better. And that'll say something more about our value, our worth, what we as Christians might bring to the table. But I, I think there's a problem with this. I think oftentimes when we romanticize Christmas, we try to tie the lens of the story of Jesus into the lens of our culture, or we try to connect it to how our culture might define success, worth, and value. It actually oftentimes has a significant impact on how we understand our own lives and the stories that we live. For instance, all of us are looking in our lives to define what does it mean to have value and worth and significance in my life. Nobody wants to be insignificant. All of us are looking. And oftentimes in our lives, we seek to take those cues from the culture. So we live lives and we start to believe that if I make enough money, if I accomplish enough success in my career, if I, if I have enough, if, if I gain enough followers, enough influence, if I do certain things or if I look a certain way, then, then I'll have significance, I'll have impact, I'll, I'll have something that will tell me I have worth and value. And so we, we translate this into Jesus' story, but consequently it's because oftentimes we're looking for that within our own stories. But the problem is, when we begin to follow that pattern, it often leads to, I think, a lot of frustration. When we define our worth, our success, our value, our greatness by the culture, then I think actually what it causes in us a lot is a tension and a frustration between failure and striving. And we're stuck in a tension of we're striving for, if I can just get this, if I can just achieve this, if I can get the next follower, the next step in my career, the next thing, then I'll be great. Then I'll have significance. Or consequently, we feel the failure of that and we pull back and we feel this tension of I'm nobody, I'll never amount to anything, I might as well just eke my way through life. And we're constantly back and forth, burning ourselves out in this tension. And we see it all around us. We experience it. But what if God actually has an entirely different way? What if there's a different way to define our worth, our value, our success, and our greatness? What if there's a way to understand greatness in which everyone gets to participate? Where the world doesn't break down into haves and have-nots. Where no one's left out and overlooked. Well, I think as we look at our passage today, we're actually going to be invited into that reality. That as we turn from the romantization of Christmas to actually the reality of Jesus' story, that we're going to begin to see that we're invited actually into a deeper sense of significance that's available to everyone. We're in the second week of this series called Fulfilled, where we've been studying through the gospel of Matthew. And Matthew structures the story of Jesus' arrival around essentially fulfillment passages from prophecies in the Old Testament. He wants to highlight for us from the very beginning how Jesus comes to fulfill God's promises from long ago. And in doing so, Matthew wants to teach us, one, who Jesus is, but also the significance that he has for our lives. 
And so last week, we kicked off the series by looking at the first fulfillment passage. Today, we're in Matthew chapter 2, where we're looking at Matthew's second fulfillment passage. So let's look again at the text, and we'll kind of walk through this and unpack it. Hear, hear it again. I want you to hear it again. It's good to hear it. scripture. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So set the scene that Matthew sets for us. Jesus has just been born in Bethlehem, but now we're turning from Bethlehem and we're beginning to look towards Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, some guys show up because they've seen a star and they believe this is a sign that a king has now been born to the Jewish people. And so they come to the capital, Jerusalem, looking for, uh, for this king. Now, Herod is the current king. He's over Judea. We're going to explore Herod more in a minute, but I just want to kind of set the scene for us. He hears this, and he's bothered by it, and all of Jerusalem with him. And so he gathers all the religious leaders, the chief tribe and the scribes, and he essentially says, hey, if this is true, where's this king supposed to be born? And they immediately go back to the Old Testament. Oh, there's a prophecy actually concerning where this king comes to be born. And they say, look, at me in, look with me at verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So Matthew and these scholars recognize that there's a promise within the prophecy, ultimately it's from the prophecy of Micah, concerning where this king is ultimately meant to show up. And Matthew, by bringing it to our attention, is also trying to help us to connect Jesus' story with the prophecy of Micah. So in order for us to understand that, it's good for us to understand a little bit about Micah and his prophecy. So Micah prophesied to the nation of Israel about 700 to 750 years before Jesus was born. He prophesied in probably 750 to 700 B.C. And his prophecy, if you go back and read the book of Micah in the Old Testament, his prophecy really centers around kind of three major ideas. And in the first couple chapters, he begins to essentially prophesy that judgment is going to come against the nation of Israel because of their sinfulness. He essentially comes and says, you've turned from God, you've turned from his ways, you become unjust, unrighteous, and so God is going to judge you. He's going to send you into exile and out of the promised land that he has given you. And so... He prophesies judgment. But along with that, Micah also prophesies deliverance. He essentially says, God's going to deliver you from that place and bring you back into the land. This essentially frames the second part of Micah's prophecy. But as he begins to prophesy deliverance, Micah also begins to prophesy about a king that will come on the other side of deliverance, that will come from this town of Bethlehem. And Matthew wants us to begin to connect Jesus with that prophecy that's contained in Micah chapter 5. Verse 6 of Matthew 2 is taken from Micah chapter 5 about a promised saving king. And as Matthew quotes from Micah, he's drawing in the themes of Micah of deliverance and the promised king and his kingdom because he wants to really show you two things within this prophecy. The first thing that he wants to show you is that Jesus is that promised king. Look again at verse 6. You'll see how he connects this in the second half of his idea. He says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Micah had prophesied that there would be a ruler who would come, one who would also shepherd the nation of Israel, this promised 
king. The, the word that they would have used is Messiah. That just means promise or anointed one, the anointed king that was going to come. This was what Micah prophesied. Now, Matthew wants you to understand and really has been trying to show you from the very beginning that this is who he believes Jesus to be, that Jesus is this promised king. And because of that, it's really significant that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Bethlehem was actually the birthplace of another king. It was the birthplace of King David. And King David was the most famous of all of Israel's kings. And King David was, in fact, a shepherd king. He was originally a shepherd who then became king. And he shepherded the nation of Israel into its high point of prosperity and life and goodness. And when, Matt, when David was king, God actually came to David at one point and promised him that he was going to send another king out of his line that ultimately would come to lead God's people into a greater kingdom where he would deliver them, not just from their enemies, but from sin altogether, and he would establish a new creation and a new kingdom that people could participate in. When Matthew highlights and connects Jesus' story both to Bethlehem and to the prophecy of Micah, what he's trying to help us see is that Jesus is that promised king. That he's the one who's been sent to fulfill those prophecies and that he's now going to become the one to rule and to shepherd God's people into his kingdom. Matthew's trying to scream from the text, really all the way from Matthew 1. Jesus is king. He is God's promised king to establish God's kingdom, to deal with the problem of sin, and to ultimately bring all of creation and humanity that's been into bondage into God's new kingdom. And Matthew's inviting us to see the reality of Jesus, to see him as the true king, to submit to and to follow. Do you see Jesus that way? Do you, do you see Jesus as a promised king? You see, for the first followers of Jesus, that was part and parcel to understanding who he is. I think for some reason, and somewhere along the way, especially in our culture, we forgot that one of the chief claims that we see throughout Scripture about who Jesus is and what it means that he fulfills the promises of the Old Testament is that he is, in fact, the true king. That he rules and reigns over creation. And that he invites all of us into his kingdom. I think many times when it comes to the way we think about Jesus, we, we like to think of it, maybe you could characterize it as like fire insurance Jesus. That, that the good news of Jesus is really, if I believe in him, then that means I don't go to hell and I go to heaven. And if you ask most people, what is Christianity about and what is Jesus about? That's probably what they have in their mind. Now, then there's some semblance of truth to that. But to the first Followers of Jesus, the gospel, the good news about Jesus started with the fact that he was the promised king. This is why when Paul gives his definition of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, the first thing he starts with is Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, who has come to fulfill God's promises concerning his kingdom and to shepherd God's people into his new creation reality. And so Matthew wants you to see from the very get-go that Jesus, in fulfilling the prophecy of Micah, is that promised king. But there's a second thing that he wants you to see. He wants you to see the upside-down reality of God's kingdom and what it actually means to find significance in God's kingdom in light of the kingship of Jesus. When you look at Micah's 
or Matthew's quoting of Micah's prophecy, he does something that's really significant to help you see it. I want to put them side by side so you can see the slight way he adjusts to help you teach actually through his quotation. So in Micah chapter 2, this is the original prophecy in the Hebrew. It was translated from the Hebrew. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So nobody notes. You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're forgotten. You're nothing. You're not, you're not even big enough to be counted among the clans of Judah. Right? That, that's how Micah phrases it. Look how Matthew brings it in. He says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So note the back half, he's made the point already of connecting the ruler with the shepherd, which is what Micah does in his original prophecy several verses later. But in the first half, he makes this subtle change. He doesn't call Bethlehem little. In fact, what he says is, you're by no means the least. Your status has changed. There's something different. Although the prophecy noted you as not even being noteworthy among the clans of Israel, I'm trying to highlight that you're not that anymore, that something has shifted. What Matthew's doing here is he's actually interpreting Micah's prophecy for us in light of Jesus to make a theological point. And this isn't uncommon for biblical writers to do. And what's the point he's making? Well, it's this, that what changes Bethlehem from being too little to by no means the least is not its size, it's not its reputation, ultimately it's, re it's its relationship to the king. You might say it this way, that what we see in this prophecy is that in Jesus, the least can become the greatest. That the places that are often overlooked and insignificant oftentimes become the places where God works most significantly. While Bethlehem was originally the birthplace of Jesus, by the, first, by the time of the first century, when G, or I'm sorry, of King David, by the time of the first century, when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's become a town of complete insignificance. It, it's completely overlooked. It means nothing. Bethlehem would have lied about uh, six miles south of Jerusalem. It would have been on the road from Jerusalem to Egypt. And by Jesus' day, it was not notable in size. It wasn't notable in location. It wasn't anything. Other than like, oh yeah, wasn't that king from like a thousand years ago born there or whatever? Like, who cares? And so what Matthew's trying to show, though, is that when Jesus shows up on the scene, it changes the reputation of the city itself. What makes Bethlehem great is not where it is. It's not its size but it's actually its relationship and connection to Christ. And what you begin to see when you note this little change that Matthew makes is that he's actually trying to get you to see this in the entire section of this passage itself. That he's actually structured the narrative with a series of comparisons to help you see what actually makes something great in the kingdom of God. What actually moves something from being too little to not the least, to being at the forefront of where God is going to work. And what he does is, through these contrasts, he teaches us, I think, some key lessons about how God understands greatness in his kingdom. And in doing so, invites us to see our own significance in light of that or the potential for it. 
The first contrast that he sets up is ultimately between Bethlehem itself and the city of Jerusalem. You see in verse 1, this come right away. Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king. Behold, these wise men, we'll come back to them, from the east, came to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. So what we see is Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but these wise men come to Jerusalem. Now, why do they come to Jerusalem? Because if you were expecting a king to show up on the scene in the nation of Israel during those days, the place that you would expect him to come is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of everything in the Jewish culture and world. It's where the second temple was built, this glorious architectural structure that literally was heralded across the world for its beauty and its design. Jerusalem was the center of political, social, and religious power within the nation. There wasn't another city even close to its prominence in the nation of Israel. And if you were to expect God to send a king to show up on the scene, the place that you would naturally think, the reputation that you would have in your mind is, oh, that's Jerusalem. That's the city. That's where it's got to happen. But Jesus isn't born there. He's born in Bethlehem. That's where the prophecy points to. Not to the big city, not to the center of the culture or the world or the religious culture. He's born in the place that most people would have ignored. If Jesus came today, where do you think he would come in our culture? If Jesus were to show up in our scene, where do you think he'd go? Do you think he'd go to Washington, D.C., the center of political power? Do you think he'd go to New York City, the center of culture or Hollywood, celebrity? Do you think I, I heard someone say Detroit? Or do you think maybe Jesus would show up in Petoskey or Cadillac or the places no one would ever think God would do something significant? That's Bethlehem. That's the place, it's like, that's not where God does stuff. God does stuff in big cities. God does stuff in the center. God does stuff where the culture deems power and influence and value is. But that's not where God shows up. He shows up in the city that no one would think about. And in doing so, what we see is that greatness for God isn't based on your reputation. It's not based on what the culture thinks is valuable. But God is the one who uses insignificant places for significant purposes. That's where his kingdom is often found. And I think it's important for us to realize this. Because I think it's easy for some of us to buy into the lie that God can or cannot use us based on our reputation. Based on what other people or the culture thinks about us. Too often, we, have, we begin to buy into the lie that in order for God to use us, we have to be somebody. And if we're somebody, then God can use us. Then God can work through us. So we got to build our reputation, our influence, whatever it is, and then God can work through us. But what Bethlehem teaches us is that sometimes it's actually our insignificance that becomes our greatest asset to being used significantly by God. That God's not interested in your reputation. He's not interested in your influence. God doesn't look at your social media and say, how many followers do they have? That's a person that I'm going to work through. In fact, it's often the overlooked places that he begins to work most significantly. 
And if you look back over church history, you see this time and again, that God often works in the most insignificant people, in the most insignificant places. Some of the greatest revivals in history of the church have started with nobodies from nowhere. Martin Luther was a failed monk, and God used him to turn the world upside down when it came to understanding the gospel and salvation. There's people all over through church history who the world would have been like, they're nothing. And that's where God chooses to work. So greatness in the kingdom isn't based on your reputation. The second contrast that he wants to bring out is not just between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, but it's between the people he highlights in verse 1. Look again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, So now Herod steps onto the scene for us. And Herod's an interesting caddy. He would have been known as Herod the Great. He became the king of Judea around 37 BC. And he was very politically shrewd. He was a genius. An architectural genius for sure. He built some of the most incredible things in the ancient world. And he ruled over Judea and was given power ultimately by Rome. But by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, Herod and Rome started to have some tension. And Herod started to become increasingly unstable. I mean, he actually begins to go absolutely crazy towards the end of his life. I like to jokingly say that Herod's kind of seemed to be on the Kanye trajectory, right? Like, rose to prominence and then went nuts. Like, that was him. Like, genius, architecturally, completely batty. Like, paranoid, I mean, off, off everything. And so, he, but by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, when it comes to the person in Jerusalem, like, he contained and had the most prestige and the most power of anyone in that region. It's not even questionable, right? Like, he is the guy. And he's at the center of it all. And if you thought God is going to come announce the arrival of his promised shepherd king, you would think he's probably coming to Jerusalem, he's going to Herod, and he's going to the religious leaders around him. And so when these magi show up on the scene, you naturally expect, okay, well, they're the ones who are going to know. But they don't know. They go back into the scriptures. And what we see, though, then, is that Herod and the chief priests and scribes are contrasted by this other group of guys that show up on the scene. The wise men is how they're often understood. Although the word that we would translate wise men, this is important, right? Don't romanticize, go with reality. The word that we would translate as wise men is actually the Greek word mogos. It's sometimes translated as magi. In English, it kind of reminds you of the word like magician, right? Might be the way that you think of it. Mogos was originally the title of a Persian priestly caste who actually played an important role in advising the king. But by the time of Jesus' day, it was used more widely of learned men and priests who would, uh, who would have specialized in the interpretation of dreams and astrology, the study of the stars, and, and in some cases, even magical arts. They were, they were found all over the Roman world, but most centered in the east, especially with with Babylonia. And so that's what it usually means that they came from the east. So these men are introduced into the story of Jesus who come searching for him. Now, it's good for us to note that they weren't kings. These were astrologers. And there weren't three of them. There were three gifts that were given, but it says nothing about the number that came searching. 
We just know they gave three gifts. So we always say we three kings. We don't know they weren't kings, there weren't three. All we know is they're astrologers who come searching because they've been studying the stars and they think this king is born here. Now, this is why it's important for us to recognize that. If there were a group of guys that were going to participate in the announcement of the arrival of the promised king, these were not the guys you thought were going to show up on the scene. Right? Remember, Matthew writes his gospel primarily to a Jewish audience. The magi for Jews at the time would have been considered unclean, outside of the covenant community of God, and estranged from his promises. You would have thought if God, the, the natural thought of the, his Jewish audience was, if God's going to show up to show someone the king is born, he's not going to these guys. They're the outsiders, right? They don't fit the mold. They're not on the inside of God's people. They're on the outside of God's people. Yet, they're the ones who come to play the prominence in the story, right? Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. God guides them by the star to ultimately Jesus. They begin to play the prominent role. And I think what we see in this is not only is greatness in the kingdom of God not based on our reputation, it's not based on our identity. Matthew's trying to highlight that all of the nations, all of the people of the earth are invited to come and see the saving work of God that he's doing in King Jesus and that they can be included in the story. That there isn't anyone when it comes to Jesus and his kingdom that's somehow outside of God's work. The Magi are meant to shock you into recognizing everybody's invited into this. One of my favorite quotes about this comes from a book, I've shared this with you before, but it comes up every Christmas and I love it. It's called um, Sensual Orthodoxy by Deborah Blue. And she, she has this quote about the wise men in nativity. I think it highlights well what Matthew's pointing to here. She, she writes this, I've been thinking maybe someone should start a small group of guerrilla activists whose task it would be to plant shocking figures in manger scenes. They could work both inside private homes as well as in the most visible places. Suburban housewives will shriek to find Batman figures on the roof of the manger on their mantle. Churches will be horrified to find Barbies and plastic dinosaurs on their altars. But people will pay attention. They will look twice. They may even stop their car. They may even get out when they see a garden troll or a pink flamingo or a big plastic Homer Simpson leaning over the baby Jesus on the cathedral lawn. I actually wonder if I'm not the first to come up with that idea. It might have been some guerrilla group that first placed the wise men in the manger scenes. See, that's the effect they're meant to have. They're meant to shock you and to think, whoa, 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 but those, those people don't get included. They're, they, they, they're not in the scene. They're not in the story. They're not the place of prominence. And what we see through all of this is Matthew's trying to highlight identity isn't what makes you significant. Identity isn't the thing. Your ethnicity your education, your socioeconomic staff, your or status, your origin isn't what matters in the kingdom of God because the guys who are on the outside are actually the faithful ones on the inside in the story. And what they highlight for us then is when it comes to God's kingdom and the upside down nature of how he works in places like Bethlehem is that ultimately greatness in the story is based on our relationship and response to Jesus. That's where significance is found. 
That's where greatness is found, right? Look how this ends in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, valuable gifts to highlight his kingship. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the Magi come. They recognize that in Jesus the prophecy is fulfilled, that he is in fact the true promised king, and they respond by falling down and worshiping him. And what they show us is that greatness, what moves someone from least to great in the kingdom of God, is not identity, it's not status, it's not reputation, it's all in how we respond and receive the arrival of the king of kings and our relationship to him. The question you should ask at this point is to say, where the heck is Herod and the chief priests? Right? These guys show up on the scene and say, where's the king going to be born? They're like, Bethlehem. Who goes to Bethlehem? Not the guys who know the prophecy. Not the guys who spent their whole life studying scripture, waiting for the Messiah to arrive. Not those guys. It's some defunct astrologers from Babylon who show up and go up and, and to Jesus. One commentator says this, we must not forget that the sin of taking Jesus for granted is the sin not of pagans who know little about him, but of religious folk and Bible teachers. See, greatness isn't what you know. Greatness is how you respond to the king. That's where significance is found in the story. What moves someone from least to greatest is their willingness to worship and follow the one who is the greatest. It's to find their identity in him, not in their own power, their own status, their own reputation. It's to humble themselves and receive Jesus as the true and promised king. That's what greatness is in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that why Jesus would have told his disciples when they were arguing about who the greatest is? He would say this, Matthew 18, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put them in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's the greatest? Not the king on the throne, the child who simply trusts. The one who's willing to embrace the true king in humility. Now, here's why that's good news. Because if that's what defines significance and greatness, everyone can participate in that. There's nobody that's left out of that opportunity. If significance is found in my relationship to Christ, not in my own reputation, my own work, my own effort, my own achievement, man, there's no haves or have-nots. There's nobody who gets excluded. There's no one that we look at and say, no, you're on the outside, you don't get in. No, the good news of the gospel is everyone can be significant and everyone can play a significant role in the great story that God is telling in the world and the redemption that he's doing and bringing. The good news of the gospel that we see in Bethlehem is that in the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, all of us can find significance. The challenging part is it's not found in us. It's only found when we're willing to humble ourselves to look to him. And when we trust and follow the one who is significant, we find the worth, the value that we're looking for. When we stop defining our reality by the culture around us, and we look again afresh at the reality of Jesus and his kingdom, we see what true greatness looks like, what true significance is. And so when we see that, 
when you see the passage, you begin to recognize that in Jesus, the least really can become the greatest. Maybe you've struggled with that in your life. Maybe you struggle in your heart to say, I'm not sure I'm really somebody God could use significantly for his purposes in the world. Brothers and sisters, Bethlehem reminds you that there's nobody God can't use. There's not anything you've done, no place you've come from, nothing you experience that somehow excludes you from being able to participate in the kingdom of God and for you to be used significantly. In fact, it's often the most insignificant places that God works most powerfully. I was reminded of this from a poem by Kevin Thompson, a pastor from Arkansas. He has a poem called, God Shows Up in Unexpected Places. And in many ways, it reminds us how God time and time again shows up in the places we least expect, but that's where he works most significantly. This is what he writes. God shows up in unexpected places. When choosing a people, he came to the smallest. When choosing a king, he came to the youngest. When choosing disciples, he came to the least qualified. When choosing a gospel spreader, he came to the gospel hater. Israel expected blessing through the birth order, but God chose the second son. They expected God would protect the strong, but his law protected the widows, the fatherless, and the alien. They expected the Messiah would come from the religious elite, but he came from a young woman. They expected the Messiah in Jerusalem, but he was born in Bethlehem. They expected he would come in glory, but he came in infancy. They expected he would take up the crown, but he took up a cross. They expected he would praise the Pharisees and chastise the sinners, but he chastised the Pharisees and loved the sinners. They expected he would ignore the poor, but he promised them something more. They expected he would honor their traditions, but he hated their positions. They expected he would take up a sword, but he took up a cross. God shows up in unexpected places. So where's the unexpected place that God wants to show up in your life? Where's the place you've overlooked? Where's the part of you that you've started to believe the lie that God can't use someone like you powerfully in his kingdom and his story? Because when we look at the prophecy of Micah and what took place in Bethlehem, what we realize is there's no one who's outside of the possibility of being used significantly by God for his glory. That's good news for everybody. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.